are listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. You will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival sermons from great preachers of the past. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. With your Bible open, please, to Romans chapter number 2. I brought two sermons to you from the first chapter of the book of Romans in the past two Sundays. I would like to continue because the thought is also continued into chapter number two. And I'd like to bring you a message today on God's judgment, the judgment of God, verse number two. I read, but we are sure that the judgment of God, there you have my subject, the judgment of God. But I want you to note verse number one. And uh, by the way, before I point out verse number one, uh, God's judgment is based upon three tremendous things that are spelled out in these verses. And you that mark your Bible might ought to mark these three things, and you'd have my sermon in outline form. Number one, the judgment of God according to truth in verse number two. So God's judgment is according to truth. And then in verse number six, God's judgment is according to his deeds. To every man according to his deeds. Men are judged according to the things written in the books of heaven in relation to his deeds, wicked deeds. This is in mind. And then in verse 16, God's judgment is according to my gospel, which is the gospel of the grace of God. Men are to be judged by what they do with Jesus Christ our Lord and with the attitude they have in relation to the gospel of Jesus Christ. My gospel, John uh, Paul calls it, in verse number 16. So the judgment of God is founded upon these three basic realities, and these three tremendous things. First, according to truth. Second, according to uh, his deeds. And third, according to my gospel. In verse number 1, Romans 2, Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, Now, I want us to determine uh, whom Paul is speaking of in verse number 1. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou thou that judgest doth the same things. That verse in relation to chapter 1 needs to be uh, uh, fathomed and understood. Or you'd really understand, I don't think, the judgment that Paul is speaking about. To read verse number one on the surface would seem to indict uh, the other company rather than the company described in verses 26 and 28 and 24 of chapter 1. And since the two chapters are related, and since the word therefore is a conclusion of chapter number one, therefore, uh, the uh, two chapters are, are are related. They're tied together. Uh, they're tied by the word therefore. So therefore referring to that which Paul has already set forth in chapter number one. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, uh, whosoever thou art that judges. It would seem on the surface that that judgment uh, would be shoved over on the shoulders of the other company, of the other people who are not guilty uh, as these are described as being guilty in chapter number 1. That would seem to say that uh, you and I, though we know that 
there are those as described in verse 24, and uh, we know that there are those as described in verse 26, and we know that there are those as described in verse 28. Yet, though the evidences around us, and abundantly so, and these experiences are real, we couldn't deny them. Yet it would seem to say in verse 1 of chapter 2 that we're not to be occupied in judging, even though we know that such things go on, reprobate uh, people, and people who change the natural use to uh, that which is not natural and so on. Though we know that these things go on, it would seem to say in verse number 1 that we are not to judge. But I don't know whether that is the correct interpretation of verse number 1 or not. I would rather think that the the warning in verse 1 is a continuation of the warning of verses 24 and 26 and 28 of chapter 1. The warning in verse number 1 of chapter 2 is a warning to these that are thus given over to a reprobate mind and thus do things that are not convenient and given unto vile affection a warning to them lest they by their judgment attempt to justify their wicked deeds. And from that angle, you can reconcile verse 1 with the content of verse number 2, of, of chapter number 1. You can reconcile the first verse in the second chapter. Now, if you're to say, therefore, that since we uh, know that these things go on, these vile, unmixable, uh, fleshly, lustful, uh, indulgences persist all about us in every community you have some of them uh, though we know those things go on we're not to judge would be to, to handcuff so to speak or to stop the mouths of the preacher or the Sunday school teacher or the uh, school teacher or the public uh, servant uh, against any criticism of these that are given over to such descriptions as are contained in chapter 1 Thou therefore, O man, guilty of the sins of verse 24 and 26 and 28, are inexcusable. Whosoever thou art that judgest that though you do these things, I'm justified in doing these things because God made me thus. Uh, it would seem to be that which Paul is saying. And that's the philosophy of our day in relation to these sexual perverts. They say, well, God made me as I am. And since I was made as I am, I therefore am not responsible. And society, therefore, cannot hold me responsible uh, since God made me with that vile affection. Well, I question in the first place whether God made you that way. I'm thinking that you made yourself that way. And I'm thinking that the devil made you that way. And I'm not prepared to indict God for having made you that way to begin with. But at least they say, well, God made me that way. And because God has made me such, and thus, therefore, it's not a wicked thing that I indulge in the things described by Paul in chapter number 1. And they set out, therefore, to judge those of us uh, who uh, live in the opposite way and indict us as being the criminal. And you'd be surprised how many people in the land will indict us as being the offender when actually these uh, uh, described in chapter 1 are the ones that are real, really the offenders to begin with, and not us. Much like when President Kennedy was assassinated, 
And that was a sad thing, you know, black spot upon our history. And I'm aware of that fact. Nobody could justify a thing like that. And I certainly would not justify a thing like that. But the news media immediately indicted the whole American uh, family. And they said, all America is guilty. All America, all our society is sick. And because all of our society is sick, therefore everybody in America is guilty of murdering President Kennedy. Well, now that's crazy. That's just plumb absurd. Foolish. For the news media, you'd think the news media would be uh, more intelligent than to make a blanket indictment of the whole American family because of the assassination of the president. But that happened within 24 hours of Kennedy's assassination. The news media had already uh, sit in judgment and came up with a verdict. And the news media, I mean by that the TV crowd, the radio and the newspaper, and Time magazine, and uh, Look and Life and uh, Newsweek, had already sat in judgment on all America and come up with a verdict that the whole society was responsible for the death of our president. Now, they judged uh, the innocent. Uh, I wouldn't be at all surprised if a lot of other people in America could have done the same thing that was done. But to make a blanket indictment of all America because of what one man did or one group of men did, as far as I'm concerned, is foolish and unreal and not uh, and inconsistent. You wouldn't do that. And that's exactly the philosophy of the uh, perverters in our day. Those that are described in chapter 1. They say God made us that way. Therefore we are not to be judged. And they turn right around and place the judgment upon us. And Paul hits, hits them square in the eye in verse 1 when he said, Thou art inexcusable, O man. You that are guilty of these things that are described, you are inexcusable. I think all of us would agree that the old man, thou art inexcusable, of verse 1, is a reference to uh, the uh, chapter number 1. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, old man, of you that are perverters, in that you judge innocent people guilty because of what you are. And that's a twisted perverted sort of judgment that I want to make mention of in this hour. I hope that you understand what I'm talking about. I hope I haven't confused you. But I, I think I, I think to tie the hands of preachers and to tie the hands of school teachers and to tie the hands of decent politicians and to tie the hands of decent citizens by using verse 1 uh, to forbid us sitting in judgment upon the sins of chapter 1 is not what Paul was talking about. And could not have been. That would have been inconsistency on the part of Paul. What would have been the motive of Paul in bringing uh, these wicked sins to our attention? And chapter 1 of Romans is one of the most solemn chapters in the Bible. What would have been the motive of Paul bringing these things to our attention? And then tying my hands by saying you're not to judge. That would have been inconsistent, you see. And so you that study your Bible, if you don't agree with what I'm saying, you can think about it at least. You can think about what I'm giving. And uh, if you have a better interpretation, I'll listen to yours. But I think when Paul said, oh man, thou art inexcusable, he's not talking about the preacher that denounces this kind of perversion. And he's not talking about uh, the politician that's honest and upright. And he's not talking about the school teacher that wants things done right in a class and on a school campus. Not at all. 
But I think he's talking about the same ones that he describes in chapter 1 who set out to justify their wickedness by either blaming their wickedness on God or on society, one or the other. Wherefore, man, thou art inexcusable, whosoever thou art that judges. Now, if you, these perverters, turn right around and judge innocent people and judge society and make villains out of us, and they say, you are impractical, you are unreasonable, God made us what we are, therefore, we have no choice but to be sexual perverts. I resent that. I resent in the first place that these people would accuse God of making them what they are. As far as I'm concerned, you might as well go to the penitentiary and say to all the criminals, God made you a criminal, we're going to turn you loose. It's not fair to penalize you because you're a criminal, and so we're going to turn you loose. And if God made you a criminal, keep on robbing banks and keep on stealing. That's crazy. You wouldn't do that. Same thing is saying to a murderer, God made you a murderer. God gave you that fiery temper. God made a murderer out of you. So we're going to turn you loose. Keep on murdering. Same philosophy. Same reason. Same thing. No, no. These perverters that we have to deal with in our day are sinners. They're not only sinners, but they are reprobate sinners. They are given over to vile affections. They are reprobate in their minds. They're as vile and as dirty and as wretched as any creature the devil ever made vile and wretched and dirty. Now, if that's treason, then you can make the most of it. If one of that crowd is listening to me now, I want you to know that you're a dirty sinner. And if you don't repent and quit that kind of life, you're going to hell. And that's spelled H-E-L-L with a capital H. Well, you ought to be that cruel preacher. Why, I'm, after all, a victim of my environment, and I'm a victim of my birth. You ought not to be that cruel. You're not a victim of the environment, nor are you a victim of that birth uh, that you claim was bad, but you're a victim of the devices of the devil. And every man that's a victim of the devices of the devil will go to hell if he doesn't repent of it. Whatever that may be, you see. Now look again at verse 1. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, uh, whosoever thou art that judges. Any of you among the crowd described in chapter 1 that set out to justify your wicked deed, you are inexcusable. Thou that judges. For wherein thou judgest another, you think you can shift the responsibility from your own shoulder. Just remember, you condemn yourself. And that's exactly the soul. For thou judges, uh, thou that judges doeth the same things. Now you can take it from the other angle, and I could not argue against it. But I'm simply giving you that uh, as a tie between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Uh, that there is a tie between the two chapters, I don't think anybody could deny. Whether the tie is exact as I've described it may be debatable. But the fact that the two chapters are related... Is not debatable. And the fact that judgment follows vile affection is not debatable either. And it's rather unique to me to notice that in the very next chapter, Paul deals with the matter of judgment. 
And the only conclusion that I can come to is that judgment is to be visited upon those guilty of the sins described by Paul in chapter number 1. Look at verse 32 of the last chapter, verse uh, chapter 1. Who knowing the judgment of God, and that's the same subject, by the way, that I find in verse number 2 of the second chapter. Who knowing the judgment of God, that they that commit such things are worthy of death. They that commit the things that are described by Paul, beginning with verse 24, they are worthy of death. But they not only do the same, but they actually are so perverted until they have pleasure in them that do them. They have pleasure one among another. They congregate together. They associate together. And they are so perverted until they have pleasure in them that participate in the same kind of sin that they are guilty of. And birds of a feather indeed flock together. There's no doubt about that. And that's exactly what this verse is saying. They have pleasure in them that do the same things that they're guilty of. Now you have the judgment of God in verse 32. I think the judgment of my text in verse 2 is the same judgment. Therefore, it's not debatable that chapter 2 follows chapter 1, not only in number, but in content as well. In fact, the judgment of God is a direct result of the perversions of the flesh of chapter 1. But in verse 2, Paul says, we are sure that the judgment of God is going to be meted out. Now, with that judgment before us, I want to say a word or two about it. Judgment is part of the very nature of God. Judgment is part of life. Judgment is part of our experiences physically. Uh, in society, judgment is a vital part of society. Judgment is a vital part of home life. And the home is the basic unit of society. Can you imagine a home where there was no judgment? Can you imagine a home where father never made a comment? Can you imagine a home where mother never passed any judgment? I mean, never made any comment. Can you imagine a family of eight or ten children that never passed any comment or never made any judgment of one, of one another? Why, that would be uh, utterly impossible to imagine that kind of a thing. I say judgment is a natural, normal, human reaction. And certainly, judgment is a godly reaction to sin. I'd be a perverter of the scripture if I implied that God is not a God of judgment. If I stood before you and said, now God is such a loving God, and I know God's a loving God, and I'm aware of the fact that I could not describe the, uh, the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God. But if I stood before you and said, now, since God is a loving God, therefore, there could not be a hell. Because a loving God would not send anybody to hell. But I would not be wise. I would not be your friend. I've become your enemy. I've become greatly unwise. And I've become uh, untrustworthy in handling the word of God. As surely as there's a heaven well, where righteous people are to enjoy righteous judgment, there is a hell where wicked people are going to reap wicked judgment. If there is no hell, there is no heaven. If there is no heaven, there is no hell. 
If there is no judgment, then God is not even like the creatures that he made. Now that will not be logical. God is the creator. We are the creatures. And we know something about judgment. We live with judgment. We're part of judgment. We practice judgment every day. Good judgment, I pray, but judgment nonetheless. If there is no judgment of God, then God is not like his creatures. But I read in the last verse of chapter 1 and the second verse of chapter 2 about the judgment of God. Therefore, I'm an unbeliever except I believe in the judgment of God. I said all that to say, as surely as time marches on, the human family, both those that are alive and those that are dead, are marching to judgment. Judgment. Greenville is marching to judgment. America is marching to judgment. The individual under the sound of my voice without God is marching to judgment. May I hasten to remind you that we that are in Christ, our judgment is passed in that my sins were judged upon Jesus 2,000 years ago. There is therefore no con- now no condemnation to we that are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our judgment is passed. But those that are without Christ and without God are marching to judgment. No way to avoid it. Judgment. Judgment is coming. Bound to come. If judgment does not come, then God is not what he says he is in the Bible. And if God is not what he says he is in the Bible, then my salvation is not secure. And my hope has no foundation except God is everything that he says he is in the Bible. So the judgment is an absolute essential. The Bible rises or falls upon the judgment of God. And it's coming. A wicked man is going to give an account of his wicked deeds. A wicked nation shall give an account of her wicked deeds. A wicked generation shall give an account of their wicked deeds. And there's no way to avoid it. I'm thinking now, in this particular verse, none of the white throne judgment. That's when my rewards are to be meted out as a believer. But I'm thinking that Paul is, uh, is uh, including the white throne judgment in chapter 2. Where the wicked dead are to be judged and cast into the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone. Now I'm sure that these that are guilty of the sins cataloged in chapter 1 are not saved people. I therefore conclude that Paul has in mind not only the judgment seat of Christ, maybe he has that somewhat in mind in chapter 2, but basically he has the white throne judgment in mind, where the wicked are to be tried according to their sins. Now I pointed out three things in these verses a moment ago. I'd like to say these three things to you in relation to the judgment of God upon wicked sinners. But we are sure that the judgment of God Number one is according to truth against them which commit such things as described in chapter number one. Therefore, I conclude the judgment in verse two is the white stone judgment of the wicked dead. Now note, the wicked dead are judged according to truth. Now truth is not relevant. A truth is an absolute. Sometimes truth can be uh, hidden. Sometimes truth can be, for a moment, 
adulterated. Sometimes truth for a moment can become neglected. But truth will rise again in the street. And if ever truth rises again, it's going to be at the judgment of God. You may successfully provide it or dilute it or cover it for a time in this sojourn. And there is no doubt in my mind, but what Greenville is filled up with many who have successfully covered their real character, the truth about themselves. If we knew the truth about some of our citizens of Greenville, it would appall us and shake us and disturb us if we knew the truth. They've covered it. But I want you to know that in the judgment of God, that truth you think you've got covered will be shouted from the housetop. And you haven't got it covered from God, not at all, not at all. Some of us know something since Watergate. We know something about being disappointed, don't we, in personalities. I voted for President Nixon, and I promoted President Nixon. And I was sorely shaken and disappointed when I heard or read the report of those tapes. I couldn't believe when the news media first began to insinuate the content of those tapes. I couldn't believe it. But when I read the transcript in the newspaper, I had no choice but to accept it. I couldn't believe my eyes that a man would cover up to that degree and, uh, and be uh, one thing to the American public and another thing in the Oval Office. I couldn't imagine that that could go on. And I want to believe that that doesn't exist in Washington today. I want to believe that Mr. Carter is a man of greater integrity and greater character. And I'd be sorely shaken, as much shaken now as I was before at Watergate, if I were to discover, if I were to discover that that kind of conversation and that kind of conduct was going on today in the Oval Office, it would shake me to, my, to the depth of my soul. I say sometimes men can cover up their wicked deeds, and sometimes men do cover their wicked deeds. But the time is coming when it's going to become unfolded and exposed. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper. But whoso shall confess and forsake his sin shall have mercy. Be sure your sin will find you out. I believe sin finds men out in this life. But I'm sure that sin finds men out at death. And men, sin finds men out at the judgment of God. And the time is coming when every sinner will be judged according to truth. Who are you going to lay it on then? Who are these uh, immoral reprobates of chapter 1? Who will they blame then? When the truth is held up, and when God tells uh, everybody at the White Stone Churchman just what you are in detail, the White Stone Churchman will reveal more about wicked people than the Watergate tapes ever reveal about Nixon. But when God reveals to people and others at the judgment exactly what you are, that's what's going to happen. That's exactly what's going to happen. A lot of people think they have it coming up. But God's going to expose it. And wicked sinners will be judged at the judgment according to truth. And there'll be nothing hidden. Nothing. I mean, not one thing hidden. Not one thing. 
Now, that ought to cause people to think, but you know you'd be surprised how many people uh, will do no thinking. Even with that statement, they'll do no thinking. Let's read verses 3 and 4. They are important verses. Thinkest thou this old man, uh, thou that judgest them that do such things, and doeth the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Are despised along with that wicked thought of verse 3, or do you despise thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth men to repentance? They despise the very gospel. This crowd of moral reprobates describe the very, uh, despise the very gospel. They despise the goodness of God that leadeth men to repentance. Now, here is the true nature of the judgment according to truth. Then I come to the second basis of judgment in verse number 6. Who will render to every man according uh, to his deeds. The white throne judgment will be according to his deeds. Now to me that's a very important thing. Not everybody that goes to hell is going as these moral reprobates of chapter 1. And I'm so glad that's so. The awful world to live in if everybody was a moral reprobate. It'd be an awful world to live in if everybody were murderers, if everybody were thieves. It'd be awful. But I think an unsaved man at the white throne judgment will be judged according to his deeds. There'll be a lot of good people who shall go to hell. I hate to say that. It seems to nature that a good man ought to go to heaven. A good father, a hard-working man. An honest uh, employer, an employee. Why, you'd think a good man would go to heaven. A man that would be hardworking, a man with moral character, a man with integrity, a man that spoke the truth, a man that was honest, a man that was above board, a man that didn't dissipate his life and waste and squander his money, a man that took care of his family and cared for his family. Why, you'd say, surely, they'll go to heaven, preacher. Well, not all of them. But even, I, I, I can't hold this out to you, for whatever it may be worth. It'd be better to go to hell a good man than to go to hell a moral reprobate. Now, it's not better to go to hell. It'd be better to go to heaven, of course. But if you persist in going to hell, I believe I'd try to go as a decent man. Because men are judged at the judgment according to their deeds. Now I think the righteousness of God would demand that. You and I would agree that at the white at the judgment seat of Christ, that we are rewarded according to our deeds. If our works are many, our rewards shall be great. If our works are none, our rewards will be less. At the judgment seat of Christ, we're rewarded according to our works. We'll all agree at that. Well, why not agree, likewise, that the white throne judgment, that the wicked have the same degree of punishment in hell. All go to hell, don't misunderstand me now. Every unsaved man goes to hell. But the degree of punishment is determined by the degree of guilt. And I think these moral reprobates of chapter 1 will experience the most severe of the judgment of God because of the nature of of their sin. All over Greenville we have good men who have neglected the gospel. 
I couldn't find anything else wrong with them. Uh, they're hardworking men. They're decent citizens. They're good neighbors. I couldn't find anything else wrong with them. But they neglect the gospel. Spurn and despise the forbearance of God and the gospel of God. And they're going to hell. But I could not imagine that the degree of their torment will be exactly the same as these described in chapter 1. I wouldn't think so. So I say to you that in the judgment, the judgment will be according to their deeds. Much wickedness, much torment. A lesser amount of wickedness, a lesser amount of torment. No lesser amount of hell, and I don't misunderstand me. There's only one hell. But the same God that rewards the saint according to his works will reward the wicked according to his deeds. And so it would pay you to go to hell a decent person. Then it would be to go to hell a vile reprobate. And then there's a third basis of this judgment. Down in verse number 16. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. That's the third. First, according to the truth. Second, according to his deeds. And third, according to my gospel. Men are judged according to the gospel. Now, I want to say one or two things that uh, all, of, all of us at Tabernacle would say amen to, I'm sure. The one thing that makes the difference between me and you and these of chapter 1 is Calvary. The one hope that I have is Calvary. I did not trust my body or my works or my labor. I don't think I've ever been good enough to go to heaven. I've never thought myself good enough to go to heaven. God forbid. And I don't think myself now, later in life, it is better to go to heaven than I ever have been. My only hope is Jesus. My only hope is the gospel. And my only hope is Calvary. I've always said that. I believe that now as fervently as I've ever believed in my life. I did not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean upon Jesus' name. My hope is built upon nothing less than Jesus and his righteousness. And all of the ground is sinking sand. We, we live and move and have our being in Jesus Christ. The gospel is good news to me. Because I look at myself and I recognize I have no foundation. I look at myself and I know that I have no righteousness. I look at myself and I cry, wretched man, that I am. But when I look to the cross, I see I've got a hope. And my hope is in the work of Jesus Christ upon Calvary's cross. And that's the only hope of God. Now, the same hope I have in the cross, and all of us at Tabernacle know that our salvation is in the work of Jesus upon the cross. The same gospel is accessible to every moral reprobate in Greenville. The same gospel is accessible to every person in the penitentiary in Columbia. The same gospel is accessible to every drunk in our city. And most of the people in Greenville have heard the gospel until it's like pouring water on the back of a duck. They've heard it and heard it and heard it until it doesn't penetrate, it doesn't get get under the skin at all. 
But I said that to say to you, the time is coming when men are going to be judged as to how they treated the gospel of Calvary. And how they treated the Lamb of God that died on Calvary's tree. Now you can neglect the Lord's day and neglect the Lord's house and neglect the Lord's Bible and neglect God's Son and reap it at the judgment, the white throne judgment, as sure as you do. You're going to be judged according to my gospel. What have you done with Jesus Christ, my Lord? I have a sermon that I sometimes preach on man's greatest sin. And in bringing that sermon, I point out some sins that are terrible. And you know sins that are vile. These described in Romans 1 is a good starter. Drunkenness is a terrible sin. Murder is a terrible sin. Being a thief is a terrible sin. Being a liar is a terrible sin. Being dishonest is a terrible sin. But those are not the most terrible. They're not man's greatest sin. I say in that sermon that I preach that man's greatest sin is rejecting Jesus Christ. I think it's greater because more people are guilty of that. Even the good man that's unsaved is guilty of that. He may not be a drunk, but if he's not saved, he's rejected Jesus. He may not be a thief, but if he's not saved, he's rejected Jesus. The most common sin that men commit in relation to the gospel is rejecting Jesus. So you turn down the invitation. The invitation is given. The message is faithfully declared. The church doors swing outward and open to welcome an invitation to anybody. And yet men pass up the church like a pay train passing up the trail. Men pass by this church right here on the side of the highway at Tabernacle. Hundreds, thousands pass by every day. Some live close by and don't even look at it. I mean, not even look at the building. Pass by as if it were not even here. And they're not only pass by Tabernacle, but they pass by a dozen more as if they did not exist. And yet, every once in a while, somebody will place that gospel track in their hand, or they'll hear a radio sermon, or they'll have the gospel somewhere. The time is coming when that crowd of indifferent people will be judged according to my gospel. And I don't know, I think I might as well go to heaven with blood on my hands. And you might as well go to heaven as a crook and a thief. As to go to heaven having rejected Jesus Christ with the blood of Jesus on your hands. And that's an awful thing. And wicked lost men will be judged according to how you've treated Jesus Christ. And by the way, the nations at the second advent of our Lord in Matthew 25, the wicked nations of this earth are going to be judged exactly the same way as to their attitude toward Jesus and his elect covenant people, the people of Israel. And so God is very tender. God is very deliberate. God can be easily offended by your attitude toward his only begotten son. When John the Baptist, we studied about in our Sunday school lesson a while ago, later on lifted up his hand and pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God! Behold the Lamb of God! Which taketh away the sin of the world. Imagine God said, John, that sure is the truth. That's the truth. 
and then down a few years later, some wicked uh, uh, agnostic or infidel smiled at that and jested that and criticized that and mocked that. God looks at that infidel and he says, you'll reap that at the judgment. Your attitude, you'll give an account at the judgment. You're going to be judged, old boy, according to my gospel. And that's so. If there's a man in this building today, you're going to be judged according to the truth. You're going to be judged according to your deeds. But if you're a rejecter of Jesus Christ, I urge upon you the fact that you're going to be judged according to my gospel. And the only safe thing and reasonable thing that a man can do in relation to the gospel is to accept Jesus. Nothing pleases God more than to see a sinner upon his knee. Because when you bow upon your knee, you're saying, Lord, I stake, I stake my arms of rebellion. I fight back at you no more. I declare and sue for an armistice. I want peace. And if you mean that, the peace of God will come shed abroad in your heart by the blessed Holy Spirit in an abundant fashion. God is willing and anxious to save you. So that's the judgment of God. Three tremendous things about it. Don't soon forget it. May we stand with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Our Father, I pray that this subject today will be solemnly and seriously considered and pondered by those that heard me preach. We may not all agree as to my interpretation of verse 1 of chapter 2, but everyone else will agree that there is a judgment for the wicked dead and the wicked living that John calls in Revelation the white throne, the great white throne. And when they're judged at the great white throne judgment, they're cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are. Lord, don't let a soul that heard me preach today go to hell. But I pray thou wouldest arrest the souls of men in mighty Holy Spirit conviction and get them saved before it's eternally and everlasting Thank you for listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. To listen to many more powerful sermons, visit our website, PreachTheBible.org. If you enjoy Christian music and programming, visit KNVBC.com for Christian music you can trust.